Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, the Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. In this series of podcasts, we're descending into the big old wine cellar that is UK trade policy and sorting out the Chateau Lafitte from the shockingly bad. And in this episode, our focus is on the stuff that's liable to drive anyone to drink, namely the red tape and the border formalities which are getting in the way of UK exports to the EU. Up until the end of last year, of course, we were still in the EU single market and many UK traders were blissfully unaware of what lay ahead, having enjoyed frictionless trade with Europe for several decades. But all of that has now changed. Customs formalities are a fact of life, with paperwork to be filled in, whether you're sending a lorry load of precision tools to a factory in Germany, or a few jars of Marmite to your auntie on the Costa del Sol. Add to that the complexities of rules of origin for manufactured and processed goods, and the particularly onerous rules which now apply on EU imports of agri-food products, and life is suddenly looking a lot tougher for UK exporters, especially small and medium-sized enterprises, or SMEs, who would much rather be making things than filling in forms. But to what extent do these issues represent teething problems which can be overcome in due course? What could or should the government be doing to make life easier for exporting businesses? And how are British firms coping with the new challenges that they face? To discuss these issues, it's my pleasure to welcome a trio of guests who bring their particular expertise and experience in this area. I'm joined once again by Professor Michael Gassiorek, Director of the UK Trade Policy Observatory. I'm joined also by Dr Anna Jezewska, Director of the Trade and Borders Consultancy, an Associate Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory, and a veritable guru on all things to do with customs and borders. And also joining us today is Ian Henry, owner and managing director of Auto Analysis and visiting professor at the Centre for Brexit Studies. Thank you so much to all of you for being with us today. Michael Gassiorek, how has the trading environment changed for UK businesses trading with the EU since we left the single market on the 1st of January, and particularly perhaps for small and medium-sized enterprises? I guess the key thing to remember is that since January the 1st, formally, the UK is now a third country with regard to its trading relations with the EU. So that means that businesses have to comply with all the paperwork that is required in order to access the EU market. So this ranges from satisfying the veterinary inspections, export certificates, rules of origin certificates, and so on. So there's a whole plethora of administrative and bureaucratic procedures which UK firms now need to meet in order to access the EU market. And clearly the proportionate cost of that, the ability to deal with that, is going to be greater for SMEs than it is going to be for larger companies. Annie Yazewska, is there evidence to support the assumption that SMEs have been hit harder by the new trade rules than larger companies have? We saw a report recently which suggested that actually bigger companies might have been more affected. But I wonder whether that's just because bigger companies are more likely to be trading internationally than smaller companies. 
Yes, you you might be referring to the YouGov poll that was published last week, which said that indeed smaller companies have not been as affected as larger companies. I think you might be right. This is the question of who the clients of these companies are and what supply chains they are used to and what supply chains they are trying to maintain. I think, you know, there's definitely something to be said about the difficulty that understanding customs requirements or understanding regulatory requirements poses to small and medium-sized companies. It's even a question of getting help and getting advice. If you, you know, if you look at the advice available or the guidance available, that's clearly not sufficient. So in order to get some help externally or get someone to help us in these with the new requirements to navigate these new requirements, they do require some additional support. I think one interesting, fairly recent development is the new government scheme for SMEs that allows them to get additional help, that allows them to get about £2,000 reimbursed from the government in order to get someone to help them understand rules of origin, help them understand customs and support them in that in that process. Yeah, sorry, I just wanted to come in on that and thinking about how different sectors might be impacted and how it might impact differently for large firms and SMEs. That will vary a lot across sectors. So we know that in January, for example, UK exports to the EU are about 45% down just on a month-on-month basis in comparison to the preceding three years. But that varies quite a lot across sectors. So if you think about the textile industry and clothing industry, it looks like the exports in that particular sector were 70% down to the EU in January, whereas they were up to non-EU countries. Now, that happens to be a sector for which distributors are extremely important. About 85% of UK exports in the textile industry is not undertaken by UK producers, but by distributors that are buying in the goods possibly from abroad and then re-exporting them. And that will go on to, I'm sure, what we will discuss shortly to do with rules of origin and minimum processing requirements. But what I'm trying to say is that the extent to which this impacts on large firms versus small firms will depend and vary considerably across sectors. Ian Henry, the UK auto sector includes some SMEs, but it also includes quite a few large multinationals which who are operating out of the UK. What's their experience of post-Brexit trading been like? Well, for the largest companies, the car companies themselves and perhaps some of the large system suppliers or raw material suppliers are exporting, <coughs> for example, steel from the UK, I think they've actually found things not quite as bad as it might have been. And I think that's largely because some of the larger companies that I've spoken to, both the car companies and suppliers themselves, realised that things were going to change and we would like to see requirements akin to the rules for a hard Brexit from a very early stage. And I know some major companies put in the resources early on to make sure they understood exactly what they were going to have to do in a worst-case scenario, and things may not have been quite as bad as all that in that regard when we got the deal, but they were prepared for the worst. And also, I think it's important to say that large companies, car companies in particular, are used to import and export rules and paperwork because they do that all around the world. The car companies making cars in the UK, bringing in parts from outside of the EU, which they've been doing for many years anyway, have been having to do the kind of paperwork and so forth and documentation and technical requirements anyway. The difference is it's a, it's a much bigger scale now. Okay, 
Now, we've mentioned about rules of origin. Now, Anna, I know that you spend most of your waking hours worrying about rules of origin and talking to people about them. How much of a barrier to trade do they represent? I mean, if you're an average business, what's the cost to you in terms of not just financially, but in terms of time and effort to comply with the rules of origin, which now apply on exports to the EU? Yes, well, rules of origin are are one of these topics that haven't really been discussed much before the 1st of January, apart from a group of a handful of trade people. But after the 1st of January, it turned out that the entire tariff-free deal depends on companies' ability to meet these rules of origin. And it's been about 95% of my client work since January. And the first thing that companies struggle with is understanding rules of origin. You know, just the fact that we have two different types of uh, rules of origin and two different types of origin is something that can be incredibly confusing and an understanding how these rules of origin apply to your uh, particular product. In terms of the cost that companies that's related to determining these rules of origin, at the moment, the exercise that we're undertaking as a country is seeing which of these products originate, which of these supply chains can still take place with the lack of extended accumulation between the EU and, and the UK, which means that virtually if you have a, even if you have an agreement, if both the EU and the UK have an agreement with a third country, these products cannot be considered originating for the purpose of the trade between the UK and the EU. Uh, loss of that ability to add this uh, origin, to accumulate origin, impacts so many companies. We've had the Pacific issue, uh, so the issue around minimal processing, what that means for any company that distributes goods or that moves goods back and forth. You know, these kind of issues are issues around sets where the rules are much stricter than we've seen in uh, other FTAs. These kind of issues impact companies across the sector. And in many cases, it's not the question of how expensive it is to comply with rules of origin. It's the question of whether my business model is still possible, whether it's still profitable, and whether I can continue trading the way that I have been trading. And is there any evidence that some businesses are actually choosing to pay EU tariffs because it's simply cheaper and easier than ensuring compliance with rules of origin? We know that rules of origin impose extra costs and extra burden for firms. One of the ways of thinking about that is if that was a tariff, what would be an equivalent tariff for a firm that it would have to pay if there was no rules of origin, but instead you chose to levy a tariff on firms? And there is some academic empirical research that tries to look at this. And typically the estimates of the sort of cost of a rule of origin ranges from about 3 to 7 or 8 9%. So that gives you a sort of rough idea of what these sort of ad valorem cost of a rules of origin might be. And in turn, going back to your earlier question, so if the underlying tariff that a firm would have to pay if it did not meet rules of origin is around the 3%, maybe 3 4 5% mark, it might be that firms are just simply deciding that they may as well pay the tariff as opposed to incurring those administrative costs. Ian, the EU's tariffs on cars is 10%. So on the basis of Michael's back-of-the-envelope calculations there, you wouldn't expect that uh, auto manufacturers would have the luxury of just avoiding rules of origin completely. So one would imagine that that's not an option that they're going to pursue. But given how integrated the supply chains are for most manufacturers in that sector, what is the thinking about 
how to survive, how to adapt, how to you know, make the UK car manufacturing sector work in a situation like this where there is so much red tape to be dealt with? There's a kind of short-term and a longer-term answer to that question. First of all, at the moment, the car companies have a slight advantage in that they don't have to comply with all the documentation, provision of documentation on rules of origin until January next year. They'll have to be able to prove that ultimately, although I suspect, given the scale of the industry, they will get some sort of allowance, shall we say. It's also important to realise that just about every car that is made, in fact, I think every car that's made in the UK currently complies with the UK-EU rules of origin for accumulation purposes. So UK-made cars being sold into the EU are not really at risk of a tariff when sold into the EU. They may be subject to tariffs when sold outside of the EU, going back to the point that Anna made earlier that extended accumulation would not apply in those cases. But for the car industry, that's not such an issue, say, for the USA, because the tariff on imported cars into the US is only 2.5%. So they're paying that anyway, and so worrying about and there is no UK-US trade deal to, to deal with that issue. So that's something that, that they don't need to worry about. Looking ahead slightly longer term, there's been a lot of talk about the implications of the rules surrounding batteries for full battery electric cars and hybrids too under the UK-EU TCA. Now, it's a very, very technical and complex area for certainly people in the industry, never mind outside it, to understand. But it's notable that both Nissan and Toyota, who make either in the case of Toyota, make hybrid vehicles, or in the case of Nissan, is about to start making hybrid vehicles in the UK, have indicated very strongly that they are happy with the terms of the EU TCA, and they will be able to continue to make their existing and proposed vehicle programs, particularly hybrids, in the UK and still comply with rules of origin as it relates to batteries going forward. So at the moment, although the industry doesn't like it, doesn't like being outside the single market, doesn't like being outside the customs union because it just adds costs and complication anyway, the industry can cope with the situation as it appears to be. So, Anna, we've talked about rules of origin, but there are other barriers facing UK exporters as well. We know that in the agriculture sector, for example, there are all sorts of sanitary and phytosanitary barriers, which we've talked about in previous Trade Bites episodes. But what about other technical barriers to trade? I mean, for one thing, everyone has to fill in customs forms. And there are other forms of paperwork which apply to UK exporters, which didn't apply prior to the 31st of December. Yes, every additional form, every piece of documentation that businesses need to provide is an additional barrier to trade. So just the fact of having a customs border, just the fact that you need to submit or you eventually need to submit, because in in the case of the UK, that's slightly different. But the fact that you need to submit a pre-notification, that you need to submit a customs declaration, that for every custom declaration, you need to have supporting documentation that goes with that. The fact that you need to keep all that uh, documentation for a period of a couple of years, that you need to store it, that you are responsible for it. Obviously, in some industries, yes, we have SPS controls and SPS documentation, which adds substantially to the amount of 
work that is required to currently export from the UK to the EU, which also leads to the drop in exports. In other industries, we have other barriers. We have other additional forms, certifications, licenses that are required, technical regulation also impacts UK's exporters' ability to trade with the EU. Any piece of additional or new documentation is a barrier to trade. Uh, There's also a number of issues around logistics. And we've not yet covered the border management issues, but delays at the border, just the kind of uncertainty around border crossing times, even though that's not technically part of additional documentation, additional requirements, but that uncertainty in itself is a barrier to trade. Because if you have an EU customer and they do not have certainty or they cannot predict when your goods are going to arrive, they are very likely to buy from someone else who is located in the EU or somewhere else where where the certainty is provided. So even just the, the, the current delays or uncertainty around border processing times, that in itself is a barrier to trade, a non-tariff barrier to trade. And these non-tariff barriers become much more important when we're talking about Northern Ireland. The complexity in Northern Ireland is on a much higher level because you've got you know, a completely new border, a completely new type of system, and a couple of new IT systems as well that haven't really been properly tested before. Sorry, can I just come in on that with a quick question, really? I guess it's a question for both Anna and Ian, which is, to what extent are you finding that the lack of an agreement in the TCA on mutual recognition of testing and certification is proving problematic, either for the firms that you're dealing with, Anna, or Ian in the car industry? Until the UK left the EU, vehicles could be tested and approved for sale within the EU, either in the UK or on the continent and vice versa by approved testing agencies. Since we've left, then that has kind of fallen into abeyance and that technically UK testing agencies can't test for the EU and so forth. Now, UK car companies making cars in the UK have often had their vehicles tested overseas anyway. It is a pain in the neck, but I don't think it is quite the end of the world for the industry in that the UK has not diverged technically from the EU, and I don't think the UK vehicle manufacturers would particularly wish to do that or would actually consider making different vehicles for sale in the UK as opposed to the EU unless mandated, unless the government said you can't sell vehicles with round wheels, for example, and then something dreadful like that. You know, that wasn't entirely a flippant comment. The point is that the UK government has not yet legislated to say that vehicles have to meet different technical standards from a testing point of view. So at the moment I don't think it's a major issue. It could become one. From my perspective, I think You know, the companies I speak to is perhaps not a representative sample. I'm pretty sure that this is a significant issue for some companies, especially in some of the highly regulated sectors. However, the companies that I speak to, and it can't be, you know, stressed enough, the last three months have been a process of discovery. We are at the stage where companies go, oh, excise, what is that? Do I need to worry about that? We're not at a stage where we're assessing how much of this is going to be a problem going forward. This is still very much a firefighting mode and trying to get your goods across to the other side. And with many of these companies, it's also worth remembering they've not gone through sales of of certain products. So they've waited until, for example, the, the the, the end of February. And with with some companies, this is the first moment when they're trying to sell certain goods. 
they've got obviously the necessary stock that they stockpiled. There's some movements that have been going on between January and now, but with more difficult and more complex sales and transactions, they've been waiting as long as possible. And it's only now that the companies are discovering that some regulations, some, some requirements apply to them. So we're basically, we're not there yet. I think it's going to be a significant problem going forward, but we're still at the very basic level of trying to just understand how it all works. Michael, we're out of the single market, we're out of the customs union, and we're going to stay out for the foreseeable future. Given that situation, what pragmatic steps do you think the UK government can take or should take to mitigate issues of trade barriers for UK exporters? So in terms of practical steps that the government could take, clearly the government can take certain steps to assist firms in the UK to adjust to the new trading regime. So the new scheme that was announced in February, the support scheme to SMEs, is in that sense welcome. Although I've already seen some companies and business associations saying that they're not convinced that it will make much difference to them and help them very much. But clearly providing support to companies to help them adjust to the new barriers is one thing the government can do. The other area which I'll raise, and I'm not necessarily hopeful, but I think it is worth raising, is remember that the TCA is in some sense a living agreement. There is the scope within the TCA to adjust things, to renegotiate certain elements through the Partnership Council, through the committees. There are 10 trade specialised committees and so on. I think it's important for the UK government to try and work cooperatively probably under the radar in those committees with their EU counterparts to try and move things forward over time, as opposed to seeking to make sort of headlines about trying to get the EU to back down over issues. I think a confrontational approach to future relations with the EU is not likely to be constructive. What we need is to work through those committees as constructively as we can over the next few years. Just wanted to add one more point here. And just to echo of what Michael said, we've seen examples of HMRC stepping in when it came to some difficulties we had with one particular office in terms of rules of order and so on. So we can see that this cooperation on a more kind of operational level exists and is working quite well. But the point I wanted to make around what the UK government could do, and I'm interested to hear Ian's opinion on that, is guidance. And this is both the existing guidance, which at the moment, even though it's out, it's available, it's not written in a way that is easy or even possible for a company to read and understand. It's not written in a way where, or it's not even displayed in a way where a company can kind of go through a couple of HMRCs or government's websites and say, okay, I understand what I need to do. So rewriting the guidance and providing guidance that is business-centric, that is accessible, that is user-friendly and written in a kind of clear and comprehensive way. I would agree with that. I mean, I think I've got an example, actually, not from the automotive industry, but from um, a friend of mine who runs an import business who was struggling with getting some goods into the UK from the EU. I think they uh, were stuck in custody for quite some time. And there were two contradictory pages on the government website, one of which said it was subject to a tariff and one of which said it wasn't subject to a tariff. And the question is, which one 
That's correct. Of course, the importer, one of the big logistics companies, was convinced that the tariff had to be payable, whereas the person I know didn't think that was the case. So that's exactly the kind of thing that, you know, particularly small and medium-sized companies is a big issue. If you're a, a big car company, you've probably got a central European tax office that is used to dealing with all the paperwork associated with it. And in fact, the car companies actually, I know, do centralise all of this themselves. So the UK operations don't have to worry unduly about actually making these payments and dealing with it because it's handled centrally anyway. But for small companies, it is undoubtedly a problem. And Zana quite rightly says, clarity on government websites and government documentation is absolutely paramount. It's worth adding to that, that you know, offering this guidance, offering this scheme two months after we have left the single market is terribly late. You know, those of us uh, you know, working in the trade sphere have been saying for years that the government should introduce a scheme, a very similar scheme to what they have introduced, to help to support SMEs to prepare for Brexit. The Irish government introduced this about three years ago. So did the Dutch government. And we're doing it two months after we've left the single market. So we've covered quite a lot of ground. And as we come towards wrapping up our podcast, there's one question which I'd like to ask each of you in turn. And it's the big question, really. To what extent are business facing teething troubles, as the government is often trying to imply when it's talking about uh, these issues? Or to what extent are we looking at permanent structural barriers to trade? And what will that mean in terms of longer term trends, in terms of patterns of production and of trade? Ian, perhaps I can start with you. Well, I think in the auto industry, yes, there are paperwork teething problems. And I think that the big companies have been able to cope with them. And I'm sure more problems will emerge. And I'm sure that once the requirements from next year to prove all the document, have all the documentation to prove rules of origin are in place, I can imagine there will be some challenges there. And even for large car companies, knowing exactly where everything comes from all the way down through their own supply chain is an administrative problem. I think the bigger issue, though, from the automotive industry that I would like to emphasize is not so much teething problems as such, but also the problem that the UK vehicle manufacturers would have in terms of reorientating themselves away from a European market focus. And it's important to emphasize that the car companies that operate in the UK, the bigger car companies, by and large, have come here and are set up to supply the European market. That's certainly the case with the Japanese, with Nissan and Toyota. That was the case largely with Honda. That, of course, is about to close anyway from another case. But Toyota is something like 85% orientated towards the EU and greater Europe. Nissan is slightly less. They have some export business to Africa and, and Latin America, but they primarily exist to supply the EU. And they... Elsewhere in those companies' operations, there are factories which supply the rest of the world. So they are highly unlikely to get alternative markets allocated to them by the powers that be back in Japan. So the idea of much of the UK car industry becoming able to take advantage of this concept of global Britain and exploit new markets overseas isn't really true because they're doing it anyway. Jaguar Land Rover and Mini, who have a fair, well, in the case of Jaguar Land have total autonomy, and Mini has some to an extent, they have already been exporting beyond the EU for many years. They've about 20-odd percent of their 
minis are sold in North America, maybe a bit more, and the same with Jaguar Land Rover. And for them to recover any lost EU sales because of problems in the EU with sales further afield would probably require a doubling, say, of their US market. Well, that's not going to happen overnight if it's ever going to happen. So I struggle to see where opportunities would exist outside of Europe for UK car plants, which they are not already exploiting. Anna, do you see a longer-term permanent shift in the way UK businesses operate? Not necessarily. I think there is definitely a bit of a learning curve here. So there's part of the current disruptions that might get easier over time. So confusion around border processes or confusion around requirements will lessen over time. However, you know, it's very important to point out and stress that the requirements themselves will stay, that these are permanent requirements. They're not going to change. And on the other hand, I think, you know, with the UK side or the UK government deciding to postpone in the introduction of some of these requirements, that obviously is an easement for businesses, but that also introduces a situation whereby throughout the year, we are going to get new requirements introduced in various areas, meaning that we don't have one period of change. We have a continuous period where things are going to change for businesses, where businesses need to be aware that something's being introduced, where the UK government has to communicate that to businesses, which hasn't necessarily been working that great and reaching businesses and getting the businesses to engage has been difficulty. So I think, you know, we're, we're only getting started and as new requirements are being introduced on the UK side, this is all going to get even more difficult and complicated in terms of opportunities. I think, you know, there is that old silver lining that Michael Gove mentioned that once you learn how to do the paperwork, you can export to everywhere around the world. And that is, you know, that is, to be fair, this is absolutely true. Once you kind of get your head around how these processes work, they're virtually the same for every market with some small changes. But at the moment, I think my biggest concern is the fact that when I work with companies and I don't enjoy doing this, but one of the pieces of advice I give them is to if possible, avoid the UK in their supply chains. And I think, you know, the long-term impact of that, that you see companies setting up sister companies in Ireland, that their companies are realizing that if they need to do the paperwork twice, perhaps it's best not to even bring their goods into the UK. I think that, you know, that the balance between how many new opportunities and, and how much of kind of new trade UK companies can have with third parties versus the loss of supply chains, the loss of clients, the loss of market share with the EU. I'm not sure that balance is going to come out on the plus side for the UK. Michael, last word from you. So I very much concur with everything that Anna and Ian have just said. Let me make sort of three points related to what they've just said. The first is that some of the problems are clearly going to be temporary. Firms will get used to it. They will get better at it. And the disruptions will lessen over time. Nevertheless, there are higher costs of trading with the EU. This will have long-term effects. Secondly, and this picks up on something that Anna in particular said, don't forget that at the moment, the government has effectively suspended the administrative checks on goods coming into the UK from the EU. And that's only for a transitional period. So we are going to have 
impacts on UK firms coming in when those controls get reintroduced. And they've just been extended a little bit, but we're not at the end of the road here about these additional controls and checks. And the third thing I would say is to do with what are the opportunities elsewhere. Clearly, there are some opportunities elsewhere in the rest of the world. They have always been there. There has been nothing to stop UK firms trading with countries outside the EU for the last 40 years. Now, Brexit pressure might encourage some firms to reorientate a little bit towards the rest of the world. They might get better at it because they've learned how to trade with the EU and all the documentation that is required. But it's not as if we suddenly have a massive improved access to countries in the rest of the world that we didn't have before. That simply doesn't exist. And let's not forget that the EU is by far our biggest market. On average, 45% of our exports go to EU. And for some sectors, it's much higher. It's 80, 90 percent of their trade goes to the EU. So the increased costs of export to the EU will have substantial effects. And there we have to leave the debate for today. So many thanks indeed to my guests, to Professor Michael Gasiorek, to Dr. Anna Jazewska, and to Ian Henry. And as always, many thanks to all of you for listening in. So please do join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bytes podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.